Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week, the next Pope. That's the subject on Catholic lips right now, and it's not because Francis is in ill health or on the verge of resignation. It's because my guest today, the extremely well-informed Rome correspondent of the National Catholic Register, Edward Pentin, is about to publish a book called The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates which is an indispensable survey of the track records of 19 cardinals who, if a conclave were held now, Edward reckons would be serious candidates to succeed the current pontiff. Francis is, after all, 83 years old, which makes him already one of the oldest men to have held the office of Pope. And given that he has the option to retire, it's not ghoulish to think about the next conclave or even to hope that it happens sooner rather than later. Francis is, after all, the most controversial Pope in living memory. In the seven years of his pontificate, he's destabilised the Catholic Church to an almost incredible degree. He is, and perhaps intends to be, a divisive figure. Contrary to some expectations, he's made no significant changes to Church teaching on married priests or female ordination or homosexuality or divorce, but he has consistently encouraged liberals who do want radical change while directing an almost ceaseless torrent of abuse at rule-bound conservatives or Pharisees, as he calls them. It's as if he's deliberately paving the way for a conclave at which the forces of reaction will be decisively defeated and a new Pope will emerge who will make the liberal changes that Francis could have made, but, for reasons nobody really understands, has chosen not to. Now, whether the next conclave really will take the form of a gigantic showdown between traditionalists and progressives is far from clear, but it will be decisive in one sense, because it'll tell us whether the cardinals are able to find someone who's up to the challenge of saving the Western Church from financial and demographic disaster, to say nothing of healing the wounds created by what's increasingly looking like a chaotic and spiteful pontificate. Edward Penton, I don't expect you to endorse that last remark, but I think you know what I mean, and I'm sure you agree that the next conclave will be an unusually big deal. Yes, I think this one is going to be probably more contentious than any we've experienced, certainly. I think it's going to be very heated, this one. The old Roman saying goes, you know, a fat pope follows a thin one, which means basically that a liberal pope will follow a conservative one or vice versa. I think we're going to see that probably. And I think perhaps the sooner this happens, I think we're going to get a more conservative pope 
But I think as this goes on for a longer period, I think we're going to have more in continuity with Francis. That's just my hunch. But I, this is a very dangerous uh, game, speculating about the next conclave, so I won't go down that route too much. But I just feel that it is going to be uh, quite significant, this. As I say, I think the sooner it happens, the more likely it's going to swing back. Because I think there is, from what I can tell, quite a lot of discontent about the current direction of the pontificate within the College of Cardinals. I think there's a lot of unease. They're a little bit fed up with all the the turbulence that's been there for the last few years, and they want to change. And I think a lot of them have just sat this pontificate out without saying anything publicly in the hope that it would soon pass and they could elect someone in who was perhaps more conventional and more conservative. That's the sense that I have from people I've spoken to. Well, Francis has certainly been trying to make sure that the next conclave does elect a liberal. As ever, it's a bit difficult to work out what's going on in his mind. He hasn't backed married priests to the fury of his liberal supporters. I'm not sure whether he's personally that much in favour of women deacons, but he certainly likes the idea of it being discussed, if only to annoy the Conservatives. His private war with traditionalists and Conservatives seems to matter more to him than actually pushing through any radical changes. But what he has done is pack the College of Cardinals with the sort of people Conservatives wouldn't want to see appointed. So, for example, he catapulted Blaise Supich into Chicago without even consulting the Congregation for Bishops. And he seems to take a positive pleasure in making sure that certain very well-qualified American archbishops don't get to be cardinals. So the outstanding, even visionary, Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia never got a red hat. He's one of the most important thinkers in the Catholic Church. And Los Angeles, of all places, doesn't get a cardinal because... Francis thinks that Archbishop Gomez is too conservative for his tastes. So it's actually a Latin American pope who stopped America from getting its first ever Hispanic cardinal. Of course, Francis, like many Argentinians, can't stand the United States and the withholding of red hats is straight out of his Peronist playbook. Meanwhile, at the same time that the four and a half million Catholics of Los Angeles are being told you don't qualify for a cardinal, the 16,000 Catholics of Tonga do get one as do Catholics in Sweden, who make up 1.5% of the population. So Francis has taken to an extreme a policy of promoting Catholic bishops from the peripheries. They're not traditionalists, of course, because he doesn't make traditionalist cardinals. But we don't necessarily know that much about them and what the effect of this destabilising pattern of appointments will be on the next conclave. Well, as you say, I think the the choice of having cardinals from the peripheries, as it were, is quite a significant change. And that does change the the whole likelihood and the the whole way of predicting this conclave quite a lot. I think it makes it a lot more precarious, if you like. But I think that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that the cardinals that the Pope has picked are necessarily going to follow his vision and his direction. I think what's interesting about these cardinals that he's chosen is that a lot of them come from the global south, which traditionally tends to be more orthodox, more conservative, certainly in Africa and parts of Asia. And so there could be a sense that uh, these cardinals will actually vote for a more conservative successor to Francis and not follow his line. So that could be an interesting uh, surprise, I think, for a lot of people. On the other hand, I mean, Francis has chosen 67 of the 120 or so members of the College of Cardinals who can elect a pope. So he has the majority But as I say, I don't think all of them, and perhaps a minority of them, will vote for continuity with his pontificate. 
You mentioned earlier that some cardinals have decided to sit this pontificate out, and that doesn't surprise me because I think whether they're conservative or liberals, they definitely feel they've been messed around by the succession of disastrous synods, which cause tremendous division, but actually don't reach any firm conclusions. And also, lots of quite middle-of-the-road cardinals are, I think, quite freaked out by the way that the German church is turning itself into a sort of quasi-Lutheran sect, with some sort of tacit approval of the Pope which makes them worry that the entire Catholic Church is going to fall apart sometime pretty soon. Yes, well, I just think there is a sense, as I say, of a certain unease. There's a sense that it's it's enough, really, that they've had enough with, with all of the, the turbulence of this pontificate. This is why I think there's a big chance the papacy will go back to the, perhaps the Italians or perhaps a safer pair of hands, someone who clearly knows the papacy more or better than someone perhaps from the global south who doesn't know it so well. So that that's why I think these particular cardinals and bishops are willing to sit this out because they're confident that it will actually swing back in the end. This seems to be quite an anomaly of a, of a pontificate, and I think they're aware of that. And I think there is a certain sense of, you know, the, the tolerance levels only go so high, and I think there's a lot of concern which is not said. A lot of it's unsaid. That's been the case for a number of years now. Let's talk about Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Secretary of State, who's sometimes described as the leading contender to succeed Francis also sometimes described as a safe pair of hands. I have to wonder, well, safe for whom? Certainly not for Chinese Christians, whose freedom and even lives have been put in danger by the Vatican-Beijing deal that Parolin brokered. Also, during his time, corruption has flourished in the Secretariat of State. No one disputes that. And unsurprisingly, I suppose, it's done everything in its power to exempt itself from scrutiny. Yet, Parolin is a front-runner. Could you just explain why? The thing about Cardinal Parolin is that he he is a little bit of an unknown quantity in that, as somebody put it, he's not so much the Prime Minister of the Vatican as, as often people think. In many senses, he's like a sort of cabinet secretary. He's like a Sir Humphrey Appleby, if you like, of the Vatican. And in a way, his job has been to execute what Francis has done. And he's done that pretty well. I mean, he's been very obedient and very forthcoming about how to really put into practice what the Pope wants. But whether that's his true sense about different things, I'm not so sure. And I'd like to think that a lot of the things that he's done, he's done sort of on orders and on instructions. And actually that he perhaps is more conservative and more orthodox than one thinks. As I say, he is an unknown quantity, but what I think this book does is shows you where he stands on some things. And I will say that I do think some of them are of some concern or will be of some concern to people who want a more orthodox pope. But as I say, it's, it, what isn't clear is whether he's just been following orders or whether he, these are things that he really believes. And, you know, the whole China thing, it's, it's hard to say. It looks like it's all from Cardinal Parolin. Certainly Cardinal Zen thinks so. But others will say, well, it actually comes from the pope himself and he's simply following orders. I do think, though, he has a good chance of being elected because he bridges the divide and he is a bit of an unknown quantity, but it would go back to the sort of safe hands of the Italians. The other Italian, of course, who is possible, who's in the book, is Cardinal Angelo Bagnasco, who's clearly of a more orthodox persuasion. Well, Cardinal Angelo Bagnasco is president of the European Bishops' Conference. He was president of the Italian Bishops' Conference. You describe him in the book as... A man of acute intelligence, high culture, profound compassion, and intense spirituality. 
Pope Francis has clearly got no time for him at all. He removed him from the Congregation for Bishops and later the Congregation for Divine Worship. But of course that's not incompatible with what you say about Baniasco's outstanding virtues. If cardinals are lumping together Cardinal Baniasco with Parolin as a safe pair of hands, then that seems very, very unfair on Baniasco. I looked through your list of 19 cardinals, which includes some very tedious progressives, and I did think, actually, there's only one person on this list who would be worse than the present pontiff, and that's Parolin. It's no excuse to say I was only obeying orders when you arrange a deal with China that basically delivers the underground church into the hands of its persecutors. Likewise, the instruction to stage a coup d'etat against the Order of Malta may have come from the Pope, but Parallel was up to his neck in it. And it was on his watch that hundreds of millions of dollars were squandered on shady property deals, the full details of which are only emerging now. Unfortunately, the main media outlets covering this quite extraordinary story are behind paywalls. So if you want to discover the jaw-dropping details, I urge you to read Ed Condon's brilliant, meticulous coverage for the Catholic News Agency, which you can find by just Googling. Anyway, to come back to my point, it's incredible that Cardinal Parolin should be spoken of as potentially the next Pope, given what's emerging right now. Yes, and I, I can certainly see that. And this is all in the book, of course. We, we make clear that in, in many ways his Achilles heel is, is the whole China issue. But as you say, there's the whole issue of the Order of Malta and the finances. What I hope readers will like about this book is that it's all these facts are laid out in a very dispassionate way. So you can see what's happened. You can get a good idea of how they've governed and how they've taught and how they see their sanctifying office as bishop. And from that, you can decide whether that person has what it takes to, to be Pope. And I think when you do look at Cardinal Parolin's background and record, for example, yeah, as you say, it, it, there are many areas of concern. There's some very good areas too. I mean, he's a very able diplomat. He's been very much respected on the diplomatic circuit here among secular diplomats. Well, Edward, I very much doubt that's much comfort to Chinese Christians. And I very much doubt it impresses you either. OK, let's move to a more inspiring subject that of Cardinal Robert Seurat, who comes from Guinea in Africa and therefore would be the first black pope. He's 75 years old, so the next conclave would have to happen pretty soon for that to be a possibility. He holds a senior job in the Vatican. He's prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship, to which he was appointed by Pope Francis and has just been reappointed. That surprised some people because Cardinal Seurat, although he would never say anything disloyal about the Pope, is nonetheless overwhelmingly the favoured candidate of those who have grave reservations about the current pontificate. He's a man of towering faith, he's an intellectual, and he's a conservative, albeit one who's absolutely ferocious in his criticism of aspects of Western capitalism. Of all the cardinals in the church, he's the one who's most apocalyptic in his analysis of what's happening to the West. He thinks that liberal but greedy elites are wiping out the traces of our Christian past. And, as he puts it, this self-suffocation naturally leads to a decadence that opens the path to new barbaric civilizations. Almost uniquely among cardinals, he opposes mass migration to the West... He thinks it will damage both migrants and the developing countries that they leave behind. And to say that during this pontificate is a very courageous thing to do. 
But although Sarah has firm ideas about the liturgy, he's a great supporter of Pope Benedict's idea that the old and new masses are both an essential part of the church's heritage, he hasn't made much impact at divine worship, and that's because the Pope hasn't allowed him to. Power lies instead with the secretary of the congregation. He's Archbishop Arthur Roach, a former Bishop of Leeds, and an exceedingly ambitious prelate whose climb up the ladder I've been watching with dismay for several years. Dismay and some amusement, because he's comically pompous. Anyway, Cardinal Seurat's relative ineffectiveness at divine worship, coupled with his age and the fact that some of the things he says do seem a bit over the top, made me think that he's unlikely to be a front-runner at the next conclave. But then a few weeks ago, the liberal tablet magazine devoted its cover story to an absolutely despicable attack on Seurat by Christopher Lamb. Despicable and semi-literate, I might add. And that made me think, well, they are worried about him. He is in the running. What do you think, Edward? I think Cardinal Seurat would stand a pretty good chance of being elected, certainly picking up quite a few votes in a conclave, uh, primarily because of the following that he's attracted, not only in the United States, but I think more broadly among, uh, if you like, conservatives who who feel that uh, his writings very much resonate with them, especially regarding the current situation, not only in the United States, but more broadly, and I think in terms of secularism, they see his writings as being very much a good sort of interpreter of the times. And so I think that would attract many people. As you say, there are some weaknesses. He wasn't able to do much uh, in the Congregation for Divine Worship, not really his fault necessarily. I think he was hamstrung by the fact that the Pope uh, had a different vision, and I think that limited his abilities rather to really push through the sort of things that he wanted, most memorably, of course, the celebration of Mass ad Orientum. But I think he he does have a good chance, and I think uh, although his age is slightly against him, it's still pretty young for Vatican years, 75. One aspect which I think is is not often said, but which I think is important to note, is that uh, in the past, at least, it's been considered that uh, the Italian uh, cardinals would not vote, probably for an African, and the Asians as well would probably not do so. But I think that's changed, and uh, I think uh, with the current climate, who knows, that may they may well vote uh, quite happily for an African candidate now. And so that's why I think Cardinal Seurat could have a good chance of being elected the first African pope since the 5th century. But still, conclaves are so unpredictable that conservatives have to be looking at another possible candidate, perhaps somebody less controversial than Seurat, which wouldn't be difficult. Who do you think that might be? I think one leading candidate could be Cardinal Peter Erdo of Budapest, He's very much respected intellectually. He's quite a brilliant mind, and he's very sound on the church's teaching, and he handled the this family synods admirably as the general relator. That was a feather in his cap. So I think he's certainly one of the leading conservative candidates who's not well-known beyond those in the Vatican and in Hungary. I remember meeting Cardinal Erdo at a social event in London and thinking, wow, this man is so much more impressive than anybody down the road in Westminster Cathedral. And there was quite a funny moment because we were speaking through an interpreter and then suddenly he answered a question in English and it was obvious that he'd understood what was being said all along. You mentioned the family synods. The address Cardinal Erdo gave at one of them kind of blew out of the water the agenda of the hard left faction in the synod. And it was delivered with an authority that made me think at the time we could easily be listening to a pope. 
Let's move on to Cardinal Tagle of the Philippines, who's a media-friendly progressive with, it must be said, a genuinely engaging manner. Yes, he has a lot of qualities in his background. He's very much liked among a lot of Filipinos. Also, a lot of them have problems with him as well. But I think there's a sense with him that he's someone who can engage the young people. He doesn't tend to confront the hard moral issues and the moral teachings of the church. And this is very much sort of in the line of Pope Francis. It's it's very much a sort of softening and trying to, as they would say, reach out to those who find these issues difficult and to try and bridge that gap and bring them in. And that, I think, to a lot of cardinals is something quite appealing. And certainly at the synod before last, the youth synod, he was applauded and acclaimed by the bishops at the synod. And I was told uh, by a good source uh, who was there that that was very much a sign for him and for others that he was a leading contender for the papacy. Now, there are lots of matters of concern with Cardinal Tagle, especially on the liturgy and on the fact that he was very much trained in the Bologna school, which is the the school which uh, actually believes that there was a rupture at the Second Vatican Council and a kind of a whole new church was created along liberal lines. For that reason, he's very much seen as as very much a sort of heterodox, progressive, liberal candidate. There is also not spoken much, but the China angle to this too. He's very much connected with China. His grandfather was Chinese. He's now being put in charge of the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples which, of course, has quite a lot of connections with the missionary church in China. Uh, I think a lot of people will say that he's been put in that position because of that and because he will be a a leading figure in the dialogue with China going forward. And again, for some people, that will be a, a point of concern because he's clearly on board, I think, with the whole Vatican position on China, or at least he's not spoken out against it. One aspect in this book, which I think readers will find interesting, at least I hope they will, is that it's quite a good litmus test we put in there about their positions on Humanae Vitae. And those who are rather weak on it, or they haven't spoken much about it uh, on contraception or any of those issues, tend to be of the more liberal persuasion and tend to be the more questionable candidates, I would say. But that's obviously a matter of judgment. But it is an interesting litmus test, I think, because it does give you quite a good idea of where these cardinals come from and, and really how orthodox they truly are. Well, whether contraception should be the litmus test is something we might disagree about. But I think what is significant and very worrying for lots of Catholics is that certain cardinals are pushing abortion down the list of the Church's priorities. And they're doing so in order to minimise conflict with the international left, with whom they agree on every other subject, and possibly this one too, in one or two cases. One more name, and I think a very interesting one, Cardinal Matteo Maria Zuppi of Bologna, who's very much a Francis continuity candidate, but also nice, which I think is one of the things the cardinals will be looking for after years of tantrums and ear-bashing. Yes, well, he's uh, he's an interesting candidate. He was only made cardinal last year. Uh, he's the Archbishop of Bologna. He is very close to the Sant'Egidio community. He is very much, I think, uh, and others think too, if they want true continuity with Francis, then Cardinal Zuppi is, is their man. And he ticks all the boxes for Francis. At the same time, he's he's also quite friendly to... Uh, well, to everybody, really. He's, he's considered to be uh, somewhat of a people pleaser, and he's... He's even celebrated the traditional Latin Mass when he was in Rome. So he sort of uh, ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of people. But at the same time, I think um, 
if those who are concerned about this pontificate, uh, uh, they'll be even more concerned, I think, if Cardinal Zuppi is, is elected, because I think he'll very much continue the line that's being taken. He's very much a, what they call a street priest. He does a lot for the poor. And as Archbishop of Bologna, he's actually come into a huge legacy, which was given to the Archdiocese under Cardinal Cafara, which I think was something like two billion euros or something, a huge amount of money. So he's got all of that to give, which he gives to the poor, which is a great thing. So he's had to handle a lot of governing issues. And on the teaching office side, he's very much, as I say, in the line of Pope Francis. So some people say he could be very much sort of Pope Francis II. I want to pick up on something very interesting, which is that the main reason the cardinals at the next conclave won't know each other as well as they would have in previous conclaves is that Francis has abolished pre-consistory meetings. Why did he do that? Well, there's various theories nobody knows exactly, but the pre-consistory meetings were cancelled right after the dubia came out. And there is a theory that the Pope just didn't want to be questioned about uh, his teachings, particularly on Amoris Laetitia, and that's why he started cancelling them. That means that they won't meet each other. They don't know each other very well from the beginning, and that's one of the reasons for this book. A lot of the cardinals don't know each other, and this is really aimed at trying to get them to understand and know their brother cardinals who could become Pope. Well, it sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but there really is no substitute for meeting people face to face. And like most journalists who've worked in the Catholic world, I've I've met a bunch of cardinals, not as many as you, Edward, I'm sure, but I particularly remember Hume, Burke, Pell, and really showing my age, Koenig, by no means all on the same page, but men of powerful intellect, or at least charisma, I've also met one of the papabile on your list, and God help us, he just came across as so stupid. And that stupidity came across when he discussed politics, of which he had an embarrassingly feeble grasp. As far as I could work out, deep down, he just subscribed to the notion that the rich Western countries suck the wealth out of the poor southern ones. That's a myth that's endlessly propagated by Pope Francis, who certainly isn't stupid. And it's thanks to Francis's relentless politicisation of the entire Catholic Church that the naive left-wing posturing of men such as this unnamed, very undistinguished but ambitious cardinal is such a problem. We're witnessing the dreadful spectacle of liberal bishops all over the world grovelling to Black Lives Matter without having bothered to educate themselves about its creepy agenda. Obviously, liberals are the worst offenders, but there are also cardinals from the global south who are theologically orthodox, who've taken to airing half-baked socialist fantasies. And the church as a whole seems to have abandoned what was distinctive about Catholic social teaching in favour of jumping on one leftist bandwagon after another. That's this Pope's real legacy, in my opinion, and I fear that it could live on even if the cardinals elect someone who thinks contraception is a bad thing. It's a really confusing state of affairs, and an absolutely wretched one, and I have no confidence that the next conclave, whoever it elects, will depoliticize the Catholic Church, which is something that urgently needs to happen. Well, this is why, and I'm glad you brought that up, Damien, because this is why we split up each profile into three aspects of the offices of the bishop. And so you've got the sanctifying office, the teaching office, 
and the governing office. So it's not just related to an orthodoxy litmus test, although that's one I find quite useful. I think the other useful aspect to this is the sanctifying office. And what you get from that is really how holy, I hope this is what you can find from it, is how holy that uh, cardinal is. And what I think is important is, is the holiness primarily of, of the cardinal and whether they have a certain sanctity about them. Because I think without that, there is this drift into a certain uh, politicization of papacy. And I think unless there is that sort of element of holiness and this element of the supernatural, I think then you're going to beget a sort of very earthly and perhaps a worldly pope. And so that's why I think it's important that, that there is that element to it. And I hope that comes across in the book. Edward Pentin, thank you very much. And your book, The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates, is published by the Sophia Institute Press in August. And it's an incredibly useful handbook. I just want to finish with this thought. Obviously, lots of cardinals will want to be the next pope, but they should be careful what they wish for. It's hard to see how the Catholic Church can avoid a degree of institutional collapse that we haven't seen for centuries. The immediate crisis is going to be financial. American donors, on whom the Church relies so heavily, though you wouldn't think so from the way the Pope slags off the United States, will turn off the tap. Hundreds of dioceses will simply collapse under the weight of debt. And I think before long, the focus on sexual abuse by clergy will shift to the developing world. And the horrors we discover there will easily match anything that has been uncovered in the West. So the next Pope will have to be not just a brilliant administrator, but a true visionary. Even someone touched by genius, because that's what it will take to rescue the Church. Seurat certainly has the vision, but as I say, it's a very dramatic, apocalyptic vision. And I can't see France's appointed cardinals voting for what would be, despite Seurat's loyalty to Pope Francis, a pretty astonishing repudiation of nearly everything that's happened under this pontificate. And remember, you don't have to command a majority of the votes in order to block a candidate in a conclave. So in the end, I think my money would be on someone who's not up to what has become an almost impossible job and will be even more of a nightmare in the future. And that's partly the fault of Pope Benedict for resigning when he didn't need to, but largely the fault of Pope Francis, whose erratic, confusing and highly politicised theological improvisations, coupled with a degree of personal vengefulness, has basically succeeded in desanctifying the office of Pope. Catholics may not want to recognise that, but it's true. But looking on the bright side, I anxiously scanned Edward's list of papabile cardinals and there's no Vincent Nichols. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.